This is The Guardian. I'm Gabrielle Jackson coming to you from Gadigal Land, and this is The Full Story. It's finally here. The FIFA Women's World Cup kicks off next week. But the hype has well and truly begun with a friendly match between France and the Matildas on Friday. This will be a huge match. I imagine this entire stadium will be full. It's on Bastille Day and it's right here in Melbourne about a week before the biggest women's tournament on the planet. For the first time, Australia and New Zealand are playing host. Teams from 32 countries play a total of 64 matches and a worldwide audience of 1.2 billion people. This World Cup ushers in a new era for women's football in Australia. When I first started in the Matildas, we could barely get a, a home Matildas friendly match and now we're going to be hosting the biggest tournament for women's football. And around the world. Today, everything you need to know about the 2023 Women's World Cup. It's Thursday, the 13th of July. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST. Hi, Mike. Good morning. Mike Heitner is Guardian Australia's sport editor. Hi, Joe. Hello. Joe Kahn is Guardian Australia's assistant sport editor. Thanks so much for joining us. Joe, I'm going to ask you the first question because I kind of feel like I know what Mike will say, but it's the one question everyone wants to know. Can the Matildas win? I think they can. <laughs> it's, it will be pretty difficult, but I think they can. A lot has to go right for them. And then there's a lot of things that are well outside their control that also has to go in their favour. Okay, I'm sure we'll get into it as we go through this episode. Joe, we do have this Friendly with France on Friday. You'll be going, won't you? I will, yes. What do we need to be watching out for in this match? Well, I think one of the most important things that will happen on Friday is that it's a warm-up in the sense it's their last game before the World Cup starts, but it's also a warm-up for playing on this biggest stage mm-hmm. and we think that it'll break the record for the number of people in the crowd which will then be broken again in the first game but if they can perform in this friendly in front of maybe 50,000 people I think that that will help kind of settle some of the nerves flush out some of the cobwebs that sort of thing so that's probably uh, pretty significant then going into the first game seeing whether they can handle the pressure. Are they in good form like how have they been going lately Mike? 
They're in very good form. Uh, Tony Gustafsson, the coach, his tenure has been up and down, but he stuck to his principles from the outset. And his, his philosophy is bearing fruits now. It's with almost perfect timing, seemingly, uh, heading into the tournament. This has obviously been the focus of of his reign uh, as coach. Um, and they registered some excellent results of late. They've beaten several top 10 ranked teams, including England and Spain. This year, France will be a big test. France are ranked fifth in the world. The Matildas are 10th currently. Right. If they can get a result against France, uh, as Joe said uh, on Friday, they'll they'll be able to go into the tournament full of confidence, knowing that they can beat the best teams in the world. They've already kind of proved that uh, of late. So, uh, you know, it, it does on the face of it bode well, but there's there's a number of factors involved and it's not quite as simple as looking at recent form and saying, well, you know, because they beat England in London uh, this year, then they can beat world number one USA or, or whoever it may be. Mm. And Joe, you just said that a record will be broken on Friday night in terms of the number of people the Matildas have played before. That's 50,000? I think 40 to 50, I'm not sure right. on the final number, but they, I think it's sold out. So that's at Marvel Stadium in Melbourne. And then you said it will be broken again next week. How many people are, have bought tickets to that match? I think it's looking at 80,000. They had to move that game from Sydney Football Stadium because tickets sold so fast and they realised that they needed more seats, so they moved it to Stadium Australia. So that sounds pretty exciting. What are the sales for the tickets looking like, Mike? Is Australia and New Zealand getting behind this World Cup? On the face of it, certainly in Australia and for Matilda's games, obviously interest is super high and it's, uh, you know, it's the hottest ticket in town. They're playing in Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane. I think interest is ramping up. Of course it is. The billboards are appearing. The events are happening. I've spoken to a few people in New Zealand. I get the feeling that maybe they're a little slower on the take up over there, but still there's, there's time before the big kickoff to get on board with it all. Obviously, Matilda's games will, will go well and the big teams will will go well. England and, and other nations with, with large diasporas in, in Australia will go well. But I just wonder if, you know, some of the, the scheduling might not help. You know, there's a Columbia-South Korea game that's going to kick off at midday on a Tuesday in Sydney. Mm. I dare say that's not going to sell out. I hope I'll be proved wrong, but in a 42,000 uh, capacity stadium, I don't imagine that's going to sell out. But look, there's many, many games and obviously some will will rate better than others. There's 32 teams for the first time this year. Um, Again, that's a a large number of teams. So um, expectations are high, but also I think, you know, there's an element of managing those expectations and, you know, things aren't going to sell out across the board. Mm, I'm seeing France versus Jamaica in Sydney. Well, that'd be that'd be a great game. Yeah. I dare say that would be uh, that would be that draw a big crowd. Yeah. Um, and that would be a real uh, you know festival of football, I think. Someone who really does draw a crowd is Sam Kerr. She's so popular and so loved. What is it about her that makes her this massive figure here? She's a very good footballer. I think it's as, as simple as that. Like, that's what she's paid to do, and she does it very, very well. She's undeniably one of the best players in the world. She's not the best player in the world, but she's among that top echelon of players. And she's, importantly for Australia, she's in really, really good form at the moment. She's coming off the back of an excellent season with her club Chelsea in the Women's Super League over in in the UK. 
She was picked up numerous individual accolades um, over the course of the season. Um, she seemingly just can't stop scoring for a club. She's won two trophies this year um, and obviously now looking to make it a third. Um, and she's really become like the, you know, the poster girl for, for this team. And it should be noted that this team is, is you know, it's been for a long time now, it's been labelled, uh, you know, the, the golden generation of, of women's players in, in this country. And Kerr has, has been at the forefront of that. The majority of the squad know each other really well. They've kind of grown up together, come through the ranks together. They've played a lot together. And Kerr's kind of the glue of that. She brings it all together. And of course, like, you know, her goals win games, simple mm. as that. I think what makes her stand out is her ability to decide a game in the blink of an eye and she's got that capability to do that and I think this is why Australia are fancied by many people to go deep in in the tournament because with Kerr in their ranks anything can happen like in a split second she can turn a match. And Joe, you've interviewed quite a few of the Matildas running up to the World Cup. Who else should we be looking out for? Well, I think there's some newer players who really stand out as well, and that's something that the coach that that happened later in his tenure, that maybe there was a bit of worry about at first because he started putting some new players on the pitch and there were some pretty big defeats that happened when they came out. Senior players were injured or were being rested. But what we've seen over the last few months this year, end of last year, uh, with the wins that the Matildas have had, is that these newer players have found their spot in the team. They've settled in their place alongside some of the veteran players. And uh, so I spoke to some of those as Alex Chidiak, Claire Hunt, uh, Courtney Vine, and they've filled gaps in the team, basically, which was a huge issue for the Matildas, particularly at the back. And I think that they're also really exciting to watch. Um, which kind of brings a new element to it. I think Tony Gustafsson has been clear in um, wanting to move away from an over-reliance on on Sam Kerr. We all know what Sam Kerr is about, but when you rely too much on one person, inevitably it's it's not going to work. So he's been very keen to bring in these new, younger, more inexperienced players and make sure he did that within plenty of time before the World Cup to give those uh, players you know national, international experience. Um, they're actually taking a squad. There's seven players who have never been to a World Cup before, all with relatively little international experience, but enough under their belt to not be, the idea is to not be overawed at, uh, on, on the biggest stage. Yeah, well, I guess that's my next question because there is a lot of pressure on the Matildas. Australia is hosting the World Cup. Have the players talked about how they're handling this pressure? Do they have any strategies to cope Yeah, I mean, I think from speaking to a lot of the players, on one hand, they're acknowledging the gravity of the situation and the occasion that's in front of them. And they're excited by that. And they're also excited that they get to play a role in this, in Australia, and kind of being a small part of this this history, the first World Cup um, in Australia. On the other hand, they're really, really focused. And I imagine behind the scenes, they're focusing on playing together because obviously they've all been away with their clubs for most of the year. And so they've come together in the last few weeks in training camp. And I think the mindset that they're pushing is very much one thing at a time. And even speaking to them, you know, last week, that thing that they were thinking about was this warm-up game. So even this close to the World Cup, they're still just focusing on one thing at a time, which is which is what you'd expect. And 
And terribly cliched and, and, and boring. <laughs> yeah. Just as level with the reason why you asked us at the at the beginning, like who can win it? That's that's all anyone wants to know. Yeah. <laughs> but but they're not telling us whether okay. whether they think they can win it or not. My impression is that they've been very carefully managed to not have any expectations, taking every game as it comes. I mean, it's all football well, they can cliches. Say that, but... <laughs> yeah, well, there's an entire nation who have yes, expectations, exactly. and expect expectations um, uh, inside Australia honestly are off the charts. Um, and I dare say that's a lot to do with Kerr. And if you look kind of a bit more deeply at the situation, then maybe it's it's not as cut and dry as that. Um, you know, Australia might have a good team led by one of the best players in the world, but there are plenty of other good teams out there. And I think that's one maybe what is lacking from critical analysis in this country at this point. Well, let's address the Australia's lack of analysis on the top teams, shall we? Who are the best teams in the world? There's a number of very, very good teams. Uh, a lot of European teams um, have a really good chance of, of winning the whole thing. Women's football in Europe has come on come on leaps and bounds in, in recent years, at a rate that we haven't seen in, in this country uh, domestically. So there's France, who are ranked five in the world, who I think stand a, a decent chance of going far. There's, there's Spain as well, we've talked about them, um, but also England, who are the European champions. They should have uh, a deep run as well. Uh, but of course, the USA, um, currently ranked top by FIFA um, in their rankings, um, are going to be a very difficult team to beat. Um, but there's Germany and Sweden as well. There's Canada, the Olympic champions, who are in Australia's group. I mean, like, you know, I'm, I'm not going to predict who's going to win it, but there's there's, there's, a, there's a, a whole bunch of teams that are, are, are capable. And I haven't even mentioned Brazil, um, who uh, always perform well at the big tournaments with a, a very experienced team. So you wouldn't be able to rule them out either. Next, pay inequality and controversy in the Women's World Cup. The World Cup is here, and can you hear that? That's the sound of you missing out. Drop everything you're doing, unless you're driving, and tune into the Guardian Women's Football Weekly podcast, because with even more teams and more living legends than ever before, this is one hell of a World Cup. To keep up with all the action, we'll be doing three episodes a week for the entirety of the tournament, you lucky things. We'll have the usual guests and lots of new voices. Join us, Suzanne Rack and Faker Others, and listen to the Guardian Women's Football Weekly wherever you get your podcasts. 
Some of the national teams we talked about just before the break have been embroiled in some controversy, though. What are some of the issues that they've been facing? Yeah, for some countries, the lead up has not been ideal, I guess. There's been sort of distractions separate to the football itself. In Canada, for instance, there's issues there when it comes to pay. There's been there've been players have been pushing for equal pay across the men's and women's team. That's still ongoing. That hasn't been resolved yet. At one point, they did indicate that they wanted that settled before they left Canada to come to Australia. Um, but I don't think that's happened, although they're not they're not indicating that they'll strike. Um, then the, a similar situation has happened with Nigeria. The coach of Nigeria has said that uh, himself and the players haven't been paid and there's talk there of boycotting their opening game, which uh, interestingly is against Canada. So, you know, there's there's some issues there and then there's also um, problems that were sort of happened maybe a year ago in regards to coaches and kind of team structure and systems and that was happening in Spain and France as well. Spain at one point looked like maybe some of their best players weren't going to come, but but they have come now. Mm. France, the players had issue with their previous coach, but again, it kind of looks like it's relatively settled now. But all these things can just weigh, you know, in the back of the mind and, yeah, affect the preparation. It's going to be really interesting to see how, if those issues do bubble to the surface during the tournament, but I suppose we'll just have to wait and see. Pay and equity have been big issues in women's football for a long time. At one point, Matilda team members had to pay for their own flights, I think, to matches. Where are we at in the women's game in terms of these issues generally? Well, I think we've come a really long way. Obviously, the Matildas are probably one of the most loved, most recognisable kind of teams, Australian teams. And the investment in women's football has increased when you look back to, I guess, early Matilda's teams that just didn't have that support. You know, they didn't have the medical support, the the facilities for training, the, the equipment, the uniforms, that sort of thing. The women and the coaches around them were doing everything for themselves. It, we've come a long way since then. In fact, the Matildas now have their own home, their own base in Melbourne, which I visited last week and it's state of the art and it's and it's theirs you know it's got it's got the best facilities it's got gym pitch medical facilities physio all that sort of thing someone else sewing in their badges yeah they got someone to <laughs> yeah, do it for several, them Amazing. probably and and to <laughs> do, you know if, if, to note here is that the Socceroos don't have their own base. Well, um, the Matildas are a lot better than the Socceroos, let's be honest. There is that, there is that argument. Um, you know, the, the, the women's team um, have this incredible investment, have this base whenever they're playing over here. It's something that the Socceroos coach, Graham Arnold, always goes on about and is always moaning about the fact that they don't have a base and they get shifted around the country. And the Matildas aren't at that level. They've, they've gone beyond that. And I think that speaks greatly for, you know, how far women's football, certainly at the, the national level, um, the international level has has come. We've talked a bit about how far the women's game has come. The last Women's World Cup was such a huge success. What's riding on this World Cup? Australia at the moment is riding a bit of a wave of uh, of inter- wider interest in, in football, which was sparked by the, the Socceroos at the Men's World Cup um, in Qatar last year uh, when they, of course, reached the, the last 16 and played eventual winners Argentina. It really kind of, their run really kind of captured the imagination of the nation. 
Um, and there was a big kind of hope within the football community that that could really be capitalised on in the immediate aftermath of, of Qatar. Unfortunately, in a way that football in, in Australia often does, they shot themselves in the foot very quickly afterwards. And there was various, you know, um, uh, scandals. There was the pitch invasion and the assault on the pitch uh, during an A-League men match. Now, this tournament now is a real golden opportunity to pick up the baton where it was dropped and and really take football back into the into the mainstream consciousness and and you know obviously like Matilda's going into the tournament have a, a better chance of 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 going deeper in the tournament than the Socceroos did so that you know there's that added kind of layer of the hope of success which could I mean if things go well for for the Matildas uh, this is going to be you know this front and back page news um, for the next month or however long. This is a, a, as I said, like a, re- a real golden opportunity to to meet those expectations. Yeah, I agree with everything Mike said. I think for me, it's also an opportunity for Football Australia to sort of put their money, you know, where their mouth is, and actually invest in the game at all levels. Because I think one thing that will inevitably happen during and after this World Cup is that there'll be lots of young kids who see it and want to become part of it and and that's brilliant but there has to be the structures there to support them and also the pathways for players to get to that professional level and so I think that our domestic league for instance I think the women's domestic league here is still not fully professional and that's something that has to improve and maybe you know maybe this is a catalyst to make those final steps. There's the huge grassroots participation. The problem is converting that and keeping people in the game uh, as they get older and converting talent at a young age into fully professional players. Um, and keeping people in the country as well. I mean, yeah. it's great that these that our players are going overseas and playing in, in Europe and in North America. But at some point, we always also want to be able to attract players to play in our domestic leagues and for Australians to want to stay here as well. Okay, a few logistics. The Friendly's Friday night. The kickoff is Thursday the 20th of July. How long does it go for? What are the big things to note about the tournament? So it goes for a month, 20th of July to the 20th of August. We've got about two weeks or just under of group stages to start off with. From there, it goes to the round of 16, 16 teams, you know, making it through to the knockout stages of the tournament. Then we've got the quarterfinals, semifinals and the final. So how many games do the Matildas have to win in order to go through to the round of 16? Seven. And actually, one of the players, Tamika Yallop, I did ask her, can the Matildas go all the way? And she said, it's seven games. We can win seven games. We've won seven games before. They don't need so to win all to seven. The final? They, they, they That's can, true. They, there's That's a true. bit of wiggle room in the, the group stage. They can drop a few points at the group stage and still manage to get through. But um, as soon as you get to the knockout stage, obviously it's, it's win or bust. Right. Okay. With the prospect of extra time and penalties throughout, which of course everybody everybody Loves. hopes and yeah wishes for. Okay. At the beginning, you know, having said all that, we've paid due respect to our fierce competitors. Who is your money on? Mike, oh, just don't if even, I can no, be so Gabrielle, rude. No, I don't want to. <laughs> predictions are a mugs game. I don't want to, and especially on something that's recorded. Um, there's no way I'm going to say who's going to win it. Like I said, there's there's 10 teams that could genuinely win it, maybe even more. Um, but otherwise, it's England. <laughs> <laughs> Joe. 
Are you willing to put your money on the table? Uh, I mean, we know the USA can perform on this stage. I think that they're going to be hard to beat. Turn it back on you, Gabrielle. Oh, the Matildas, (laughs) of course. That was Guardian Australia's sport editor, Mike Heitner, and Joe Kahn, Guardian Australia's assistant sport editor. You can read more of their coverage of this World Cup on theguardian.com and there's so much good reading to be had there. Do find the tag and go and read up. And there's lots for people who, like me, may not be au fait with all the rules of football and it's still some great reading to be had. That's it for today. This episode was produced by Karishma Luthria, additional production by Camilla Hannan. Sound design and mixing by Tegan Nichols. The executive producer is Hannah Parks. I'm Gabrielle Jackson, and I'll be back in your feed tomorrow with the Newsroom Edition. We'll see you then. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.